and welcome back to Love at First Screening, the show where I, rom-com enthusiast Madison, introduce my friend, co-host, and resident genre skeptic Chelsea. That's me. To all the feel-good. Cliché. Romantic. Questionable. Hilarious. Occasionally humorous. Films she's never wanted to watch. Well, Chelsea, I don't want to alarm you, okay? Don't freak out. I can see you freaking, don't freak out. But I sense a presence in the room here with us today. A presence like a ghost? Um, something a bit more corporeal. Are we corporeal in a digital space? I wasn't prepared for that. <laughs> um, I think the fact that there could be understood tangibility in the space in which you dwell literally follow-up question okay if a ghost yes. so a non-corporeal entity were to possess if you will a digital space does that non-corporeal entity then become corporeal in the digital space are they now equal to those who are corporeal in the physical realm. Chelsea, I'm going to do you one better. And if you cannot see it and perceive it in that moment, does it exist at all? And that, children, brings us to our first sponsor, our word of the day, solipsism. You know, it's funny you should bring up word of the day because this entity you have alluded to that is here with us tonight recently started a TikTok series in which... They offer videos that ponder upon various words. And the very first video that they did was a video in which uh, they used a word that was said on our podcast, that word being quintessential. Uh, and I was the one that said it on some episode. I don't remember which one. Yeah. So how appropriate to give this person not only a huge welcome, which we're about to do, into the studio, but another word for them to feature on their TikTok. And, you know, Chelsea, I would say that this person is quintessential to our friend group as well. So they're really embodying the word. Chelsea, who the hell is in our studio today? Today we have the one, the only, the kindest human being that I've ever met and the number one hype woman amanda hello it's so good to be here well thank you for coming on our pod we understand that you're very busy uh writing some incredible poetry and that we're just really grateful that you could find a way to sneak us in into your time schedule uh we'll plug her poetry very soon but amanda thank you for being here today of course. I think I gave myself away with the laugh, but <laughs> it's so great to be here. <laughs> oh, and you used my favorite word, corporeal. Oh. Wow. A double whammy. A double whammy. That's right. Madison, can you please repeat whatever the heck word you just said? Solipsism. And can you please define that? It's essentially, if I'm not incorrect, a philosophical concept that basically centers around questioning the existence of anything that is outside of our own reality like if it is not perceived within our reality and within our instance does it exist at all 
solipsism. Yeah. Love it. I could be totally wrong about that. It's been a very long time since I had a discussion about it. Well, uh, if you are indeed wrong, we will fix that in post. If not, you can assume that she was correct. And Unless Amanda is currently looking it up on her phone. Which honestly. Because she's a guest with the most. It's true. Definition number two under philosophy. The view or theory that the self is all that can be known to exist. Yep. <laughs> so is this what contributes to main character syndrome? If I can only perceive and know that I exist, therefore everyone else could just be a conjured image from my imagination as a supporting cast in my own life. Yeah, no, absolutely. And how would I know any different? How I, I don't know. The only thing I know is that I exist. I mean, it really does also depend on your grasp on uh, object permanence. It actually reminds me of kids, the way that kids don't understand object permanence. Like you said, Madison, like they're playing hide and seek. They think that if they're covering their eyes and they can't see you, that you can't see them. It's that idea of like all they know is themselves. So anything outside That's of true. themselves doesn't exist if it's if it's away at the moment i think this is probably one of the most philosophical discussions we've had right up at the top <laughs> right out the gate usually we, we we we've gotten into some deep discussions from time to time in the middle of the episode when we're digging into something specific in a film my plan uh was to talk about my pajama pants when i came on here and instead i'm contemplating whether or not anything exists but myself now. <laughs> Wait, tell me more about your pajama pants, though. <laughs> we'll figure out if they exist. Yeah, so, you know, yeah. <laughs> I'm wearing them, so I, I think they do exist, you know, since I know I exist. So Madison, uh, several episodes ago, introduced a drink, and I thought, I need to bring something, like, fun and, like, quirky to the table and so I thought I would start sharing what pajama bottoms I'm recording in <laughs> I thought that would be fun for the listeners it'll at least be fun for a handful of episodes eventually I'll repeat because here's the thing I'm starting with the pajama bottoms that I love the most and those are my sriracha pajama bottoms <gasps> oh wow if anyone knows me I'm a condiment queen I love a sauce. I love dips. I love to put things on other things. In fact, sometimes you might say that me eating a solid food is really just a vehicle to eat whatever sauce I'm putting on it because that's really what I want to be eating. So I do love sriracha. I love spicy things, love a hot sauce. Um, and I found these at Target and I was like, oh my God, sriracha sweatpants. They're like joggers but they're, they, they're sriracha, and I love them. And as a bonus, I'll tell you what T-shirt I'm wearing, a olive green T-shirt with a yellow barcode on it, and it says Hostel 17 because that's a Buffy reference. Madison, I'm a little concerned that you don't seem to know what that is. I You looked confused. <sighs> what season are we talking about? I You know I suppress certain ones. Okay, it's season four. However, Hostel 17 is one of the best characters in the show. Yeah, but that's when we get introduced to Riley. And you know my attention span goes right out the window when he's on screen. I don't want to give too much away because, Madison, as you know, your favorite 
park ranger and I are currently watching Buffy because they've never seen it before. I may have alluded to the fact that Riley Finn is the worst thing ever to happen to Buffy. He is. But, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say who Hostel 17 is. I think I you think can I figure know. that out. Yeah, I think I know who yeah. Hostel 17 is. So anyway, this is a winning comfy outfit for me. And I hope everyone looks forward to whatever the heck I'm wearing next time we record. Could be the same outfit, so maybe I won't mention it. I don't know. I'm trying something new. I <laughs> thought maybe the people would want to know. You know, they're getting to know Madison because Madison is a classy, bougie cocktail lady. <laughs> I'm not that. I'm a, but I am a connoisseur of comfortable clothing and pajamas. So amazing. Have quite the collection. <laughs> <laughs> so Amanda, we like to ask all of our guests, essentially their prior interactions with rom-coms if it's a genre they enjoy if they have a favorite movie uh associated it with a genre so tell us a little bit about your interaction with rom-coms through your life yes but i kind of grew up with them my sisters and i watched them uh pretty much all our lives so i have a huge nostalgia about a lot of rom-coms i wouldn't say it's I wouldn't say it's a genre that I necessarily love, but I am I am sappy and I am romantic. But <laughs> I tend to I tend to want a little more of an intellectual aspect or a mystery of some kind involved mm. with with the stories that I enjoy the most. But but yeah, I get mm -hmm. I get sappy and doughy eyed when I'm <laughs> watching a scene in the rain someone declaring their love but um but yeah mostly i don't think i have a favorite rom-com i just have the handful that just feel very nostalgic we we grew up on the classic sandra bullock stuff uh while you were sleeping um two weeks notice of course meg ryan so there's Sleepless in Seattle. You've got Mail. Um, those those old Chelsea's ones. favorite. Yeah, Chelsea's favorite. How how dare you? <laughs> that caviar is a garnish. <laughs> you know, I understood her in that moment. Look, look, I'm not, the enemy number one in that movie is Tom mm -hmm. Hanks, but also I think she had a lobotomy or something. <laughs> Chelsea to want it to be him at the end. I think you're wrong. I don't think that Tom Hanks was the number one enemy in that movie. I think it's what he actually embodied, and that was capitalism. Yes, I agree. I guess we should probably tell them what we watched. Mm -hmm. Oh, allow So it. this week we watched Always Be My Maybe, which came out in 2019 and features the incredible Ali Wong, Randall Park, Michelle Buteau, Keanu Reeves. <laughs> Playing himself, which was just incredible. And also uh, Daniel Day Kim and a few other just completely excellent actors and actresses. This was a really like well-stacked cast, in my opinion. But before I go into the details, just because I'm chomping at the bit, usually at this point, I guess if Chelsea liked it. But instead, now Chelsea's going to guess if you liked it, Amanda, because she doesn't normally get the joy of doing this because Chelsea's already seen this film, even though she remembered very little of it. 
I tried to convince Madison that we did not need a guest for this episode because while I know that I did watch this movie at the recommendation of former guest of the pod, Emma, who may or may not be back later this season, who's to say? I know I watched it, but I did not remember anything other than the fact that Ali Wong and Randall Park were in it and were the love interests. But I couldn't tell you what they did for a living. I couldn't tell you any of their history. I couldn't tell you how they met each other. Nothing. But Madison insisted that we needed a guest regardless of my lack of a memory. It's for the integrity of the rule. (laughs) Okay, but to go back to what we were just talking about, if I don't believe any, like I don't remember anything about this, then have I seen the movie? Now we're getting back into the philosophical conversations. Well, technically, your brain does not forget any information but it stores it so maybe you are not recalling that information but it is stored somewhere in your mind so amanda you're saying my brain is broken because it can't recall this one movie and i really expected when i watched this again that i would be like oh yes that that's what happened had no (laughs) recollection At no point did I remember a single thing about this movie. So as far as I can tell, I've only seen it once and it was very recently. But (laughs) back to Amanda. Amanda, did you like this movie? I think that you had a fun time. I think there are things that weren't necessarily to your taste. But I think overall, there were some funny things. I think you appreciated the awkward teenage moments. I think you liked that Ali Wong was a very driven individual and I think you liked the childhood friends to lovers and then long estrangement and then lovers again plot. I think that was probably appealing. You are exactly right. That was spot on. No, it's absolutely spot on. (laughs) This is why we pay her the big bucks. By big bucks, she means monopoly (laughs) money. Look, I drew those myself with your face on them. I thought you would have appreciated that a little bit more than you're letting on. More valuable than gold, honestly. Do you know how expensive postage is these days, Chelsea? It put me back a whole 61 cents. To send that Honestly, to I don't know what the price of postage is because I still have my aunt's birthday present, which is not even from me. It's from my mother, but I'm supposed to mail it and I still have it. So <laughs> you know what? Um, Aunt Aunt Justine, I I just want to apologize because as of recording this, uh, I still haven't mailed it. Your birthday was in January. Um, hopefully I'll have mailed it by the time this episode airs, but you know what? I make no promises. I uh yeah I'm I don't know I don't even know what to say I have Amanda's Christmas present right next to me at this moment so I think that you're still doing better than I am I mostly just feel guilty because it's not my gift to her it's my mother's (laughs) gift to her Erin I'm sorry on Chelsea's behalf (laughs) oh yeah right sorry mom (laughs) 
Incredible. Well, I guess I will tell everyone who didn't watch this movie what this movie is about. And I'm actually going to go into a little bit deeper plot synopsis than normal just because I felt like this movie had so many good comedic moments that I don't want to lose them in my explanation because really what I'm trying to do is convince them to watch it because they're going to hear me tell them about it and then know that it was six million times funnier to watch. We open up with Sasha, played by Ali Wong, and Marcus, played by Randall Park, who, by the way, this is Randall Park's second time appearing on the show. Mm, yeah. All the way back in season one, he was Todd's racist father. Yep. That was him. And straight up. I didn't mm-hmm. recognize him. <laughs> well, it's probably because he was being a racist asshole. <laughs> he doesn't do that any other time. Uh, but so we have Sasha played by Ali Wong and Marcus played by Randall Park. They are childhood next door neighbors and best friends living in San Francisco. Sasha's parents are never home. So she often goes over to Marcus's house for dinner. And Marcus's mother, Judy, teaches Sasha how to cook. When they're teenagers, Marcus's mom dies in an accident and the two become extra close and eventually lose their mutual virginities, if you believe in that construct, to one another uh, after having sex in the back of Marcus's car. And then immediately afterward in a Burger King, Marcus tells Sasha that he's not going to college. And when she questions it, he gets upset, um, obviously sort of projecting about his grief with his mother and tells Sasha that it was his mom who died, not hers. And she leaves angry and upset and the two stop speaking. Then you flash forward to present day and she's an incredibly successful chef in Los Angeles. She's engaged to a restaurant manager. I get. I don't know what his what Daniel Day Kim's official title was. I think he he's her manager. So she's a celebrity chef. Yeah. So he's managing her career in the public eye, not as a chef. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so he, uh, they are set to be married, they're engaged, and then he decides to get an opportunity to tour with another famous chef. He postpones the engagement to take a six-month break where they can see other people, and Ali Wong's character, Sasha, pretends to be fine with this, but is absolutely heartbroken. Uh, she's setting up shop at a new location, in San Francisco and her best friend and assistant Veronica, who is Michelle Buteau, who is one of the best characters in this film. I mean, there's a lot of funny people in this film, but she just has like some of the best quips, uh, ends up hiring Marcus and his father, Harry, who's playing played by James Sato, uh, to set up the air conditioning. That's what Marcus ended up doing. He went into business with his father after his mom died to help keep everything afloat and support his dad. Uh, He still lives at home, works with his dad, and then also plays in a band on the weekends and in the evenings. And after an awkward encounter where Sasha did not expect to see Marcus there, Veronica had set everything up. She ends up going to one of his concerts later that evening in a total dive bar and takes her home in the same car. They lost their virginity. And and this is just so much later. I don't understand how that Corolla still has wheels, but 
regardless. She ends up breaking up with Brandon after he calls and says that he has more business ideas that he's been brainstorming with the woman that he's basically been cheating on her with. You could have a whole Ross, Rachel, they were on a break thing, but I don't care. They were engaged and now they're seeing other people. So heartbroken, she ends up hooking up with Keanu Reeves playing himself. Uh, well, like a much of a caricature version of himself. And he's with this weird, strange hippie woman. Uh, he ends up punching Keanu Reeves after Keanu Reeves said that he would kill him. It's a whole thing. Basically, this pushes Sasha and Marcus back together in a romantic relationship. But then Marcus realizes that he doesn't want to be just the normal average guy on the arm of Sasha's celebrity chef self. And they break up. She goes to New York to set up her new restaurant there. And Marcus's band is kind of taking off a bit. Like it's doing really well. And at the end, he realizes that he would rather be her arm candy than not have her at all. They get together. She opens up a restaurant as an homage to his mother and everything's happily ever after. And the best part of this movie was in fact, the existence of Keanu Reeves playing a characterized version of himself. I think Madison, that's because at the annual holiday murder mystery party, you played a mock version of Keanu Reeves called Keanu Heaves. And I got away (laughs) with it. So yeah, uh, but Chelsea, for anyone who wants to have a little a little cocktail, a little beverageino, if you will, while enjoying this film, uh, the first that I propose is a soju-based cocktail, which is a clear distilled Korean liquor made from rice or other starches like sweet potato or tapioca. It's normally served by itself in a smaller glass, similar to a shot glass, but slightly larger. I decided that uh, it by itself wasn't enough to satisfy the bouginess of the proffered cocktail. So instead, to follow the cocktail trend, I am recommending Somek, which is Korean soju and beer, like a cocktail, sort of like a boiler maker. If you know what that is, it's beer and think whiskey. You can use a lighter lager style beer so you can play up the citrus element by using a beer like Blue Moon or Shock Top, which are a Belgian wheat style beer and a citrus flavored soju. That actually sounds pretty good, right? I, I'd give that a shot. Alternatively, because I like to have alternative options for anyone listening, you can also opt for an IPA where they take an overhopped beer and try to redeem it by pretending it tastes better with whatever fruit they add into it, which is almost always grapefruit, which no one actually likes. All right. Um, I like IPAs, so... <laughs> I don't know what you're trying to say. She's not bougie enough. <laughs> no, I'm saying that it's so faux bougie. It's just like every brewery, microbrew place you go to, they're like, I'm just going to throw a shit ton of hops and a random fruit at this and call it a good <laughs> beer. It's so bitter, Chelsea. I've had bad IPAs, but I, you know what? I've decided that it 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 must be everybody, you know, everybody's got different tastes, but I think mine line up. So I like IPAs mm-hmm. bitter. I like dark chocolate bitter. I like black coffee or coffee without any sugar. Espresso. I make espresso bitter. So clearly 
my tolerance for bitterness. I and also I tend to lean toward like bold dark roasts coffees, not don't give me a blonde roast that's like water. Like I can't taste it, which is what I feel when I drink some of the like lighter beers, not all of them, but a lot of them. Now, all that being said, I hate stouts. They're gross. I don't like them. But IPAs, I think I need that bitter element. So for all of you bitter bitches out there. (laughs) You know, Chelsea, I read an article the other day that was talking about uh, people who tend towards more bitter things like um, people who drink black coffee, people who drink gin, people who drink just really or tend towards really bitter flavors. Uh, actually are more likely to show sociopathic traits and antisocial traits. So what you're saying, Madison, is that you should be really wary about pissing me off by hitting your hands against the table while we're recording so that the mic picks up every knock. (laughs) I am. I'm holding my hands underneath this table like they are interlaced together so I don't, I don't touch anything other than my own hands. I might just like comfort hold my boobs, like you know people do when they go upstairs and stuff like that. I might just start doing that when we record. It makes it awkward for me and no one else. Yeah, so. I wouldn't get on her bad side. <laughs> I just live in fear about spending extended periods of time in the same place as Chelsea. Aren't you in for a? wild ride next month i know when you're alone with me in a cabin in the woods in the woods i feel so unsafe it's actually all a setup for my true crime podcast that i'll be launching (laughs) so you're basically gonna oh i can't say it because it'll give it away but there's a tv show where basically that's sort of the setup i know exactly which one you're talking about well, now that I am thoroughly afraid and kind of have to pee now, um, <laughs> out of fear, uh, Amanda, what did you, what were some of the highlights of the film for you? I wrote down several things. One of my favorite things was, um, I made a note that says, BK, you can eat it in your car and cry. <laughs> That should be their new slogan. I think that more fast food companies should really corner the market on cry eating in your car. Because I can list, gosh, probably at least five off the top of my head of fast foods that I have eaten while sobbing violently in my car. I think they really need to lean into internet culture and... Like, okay, this this isn't totally the same thing, but do you remember that, you know, Bic makes lighters? Mm-hmm. And they had this campaign with Martha Stewart and Snoop Dogg because you could use a lighter for lots of things. Mm-hmm. Could be candles, could be lighting up something that's only legal in certain states. <laughs> what do you and mean, And you know Chelsea? what? Bic doesn't judge. <laughs> Bic doesn't judge. You know, Amanda, I feel like you have a really promising career in marketing if they would just hear you out like 
I can't really eat at Steak and Shake anymore uh, because I have developed a beef intolerance in the past two years where if I eat beef, which doesn't mean anything to you guys because Chelsea's a vegetarian, Amanda's a vegan, uh, and I'm going to ask you a question about that in a second. But I've developed a beef intolerance, so I can't really like go grab a Steak and Shake burger or hot dog or anything anymore like that. But I will say that I feel like they could have a very promising focus on the combo of milkshakes and fries where it's like sob in your car while eating these things together uh the fries are so crispy your tears won't make them soggy Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. i think that's a great ad hey steak and shake i've gotten tons of fries and cried in my car sweet sweet sponsorship money what's your favorite fry to eat while crying in your car yeah (laughs) Amanda, I'm very disappointed. I actually know somebody who every time that they go to Chick-fil-A, they donate an equal amount of what they spent to like the human rights campaign or something like that to offset the karmic balance, I guess. I think they should double what they spent and send that to a human rights campaign. Yeah. I think my favorite would probably, I mean, it's probably something like Steak and Shake or somewhere with those really skinny fries where you can grab like a whole bunch of them and shove them all in your mouth at once Mm. like a little goblin. I love that. I've realized recently that I love tater tots. Oh, I love a good tot. More than french fries. Did I consume one too many tater tots before recording tonight? I can neither confirm (laughs) nor deny this. I will take that as confirmation. (laughs) And as your unofficial legal representative, I do not want you to state on the record either way. So please refrain. (laughs) No comment. Perfect. On the conversation of my co-host being much better than I am in terms of their environmental impact with their food. I did want to ask you, Amanda and Chelsea, as people who do not eat meat, what did you think about the scene with Keanu Reeves where he is eating the venison while sobbing and screaming, I'm sorry, uh, while he listens to the deer that he's eating like roam around in a field? I have to say, I I laughed at that. I loved how Ali Wong was just completely unperturbed and was just like chowing down. And the uh, Jenny was sitting there looking so contemplative. And Randall Park's character was just baffled by the whole experience. It's like, is this what people consider a dining experience? I think this is funny on multiple levels. This whole sequence with Keanu Reeves is like some of the best stuff that's happening in the movie. It's just like a whole chunk where you just keep laughing. Obviously, from Randall Park's character's perspective, he leaves there still hungry and they've spent $6,400 on this meal for four. Mm -hmm. Ridiculous. I don't have to do an inflation check because this was 2019. So while I'm sure it would be slightly more expensive now, it's not going to be as drastic as they'd spent $6,400 on a meal in 1953. Anywho, from his perspective, he's like, this place that they're at is like combining performance art with culinary meals. Yeah, like a culinary experience performance art is sort of what's happening. But at the same time, I think it really speaks to the 
ridiculousness and the performative nature of a lot of wealthy people. Mm -hmm. So, for example, he's sitting there having a meal where he's eating venison, listening to the deer roam through the forest and crying and it sort of points to this idea that like you can be completely aware of what you're participating in and still participate in it but also like no like even more so knowingly do it i'm not articulating this well but okay so he's he's eating this venison and the headphones that he's wearing to listen to the sounds of the deer is supposed to be an appreciation of the animal but I'm sure what he's eating is only a small fraction of that animal. So my question is, how much of the animal was discarded to give you like the prime cut? So I I think I'm a vegetarian, but I think that there's a sustainable and ethical way to consume animals. Uh, I don't personally, but I, I don't think that doing so makes you a bad person. And also, we're all here on a floating space rock and we all have to make our own choices and decide where we're, you know, putting our energy and I'm not going to sit here and and judge a person, but I will judge the ridiculousness of this situation. The performative like I'm going to sob and be so moved by the fact that this animal, you know, used to be alive, but I'm also going to like put it in my mouth. Like I I, <laughs> I like literally he's sobbing and then he takes a bite of this meat. I feel like there's probably a better example, but I think it speaks to a lot of the the ways in which a lot of celebrities or not just celebrities but like public figures, particularly wealthy people try to craft a persona that is essentially just a guise to assuage any guilt they have about the like wrongs that they participate in. It's just really funny to watch this because you would think you'd either be so moved to the point that you wouldn't want to. And they also, they frame it as like appreciating the animal's sacrifice, but the animal like didn't. I really enjoyed this scene too for a similar reason of, um, I don't know if either of you have seen the movie The Menu which came out pretty recently with Anya Taylor-Joy. It's incredible. And this doesn't give anything in the movie away. But one of the courses that they are served, because in the menu, the guests are all upper echelon elite types who have spent well over a grand per person to be there. And the I think it's the second first or second course i can't is the second course they are served like a bread plate with no bread because bread is a food typically associated with peasantry it's a food that you have wide access to regardless of your economic status and because they are so wealthy and so elite they are not offered bread because obviously that would be below them that is food of a lower class and the 
tiny, ridiculous portions and the foams and the fish flakes or whatever, and all of this that they are eating through this, you know, it's a $6,400 meal for four people and they're still hungry afterward. It's this really unsettling look at in a country of massive food insecurity, you have people having extravagant meals that per person cost what is essentially one month's rent in certain areas for a one bedroom apartment or a studio apartment. And they're having a meal that is essentially a concept because there's no substantial food ingested throughout the meal. And it's, I don't know, the idea of making hunger fashionable, it's I guess. It's funny you should say that because th- that scene, just the extravagance around around that idea of food reminded me of the scene in Hunger Games Catching Fire. Mm where they are celebrating, uh, you know, PETA and Katniss. And Katniss finds out that, you know, people are trying all of these different foods and then throwing it up so that they can eat more. Kind of reminded me of that for not, well, it's kind of a different situation with food. Because again, in, in, in our scenario with Always Be My Maybe, they're they're not full enough. <laughs> yeah, it's the it's a weird parallel of minimalism versus such like the extravagance to the point of self-induced mm-hmm. illness. And it's just the same thing, just on opposite ends of that spectrum. I guess what I really enjoyed about this scene with what Chelsea referenced with the weird performative element of appreciating an animal's sacrifice and listening to it as you eat it paired with the minimalism of the courses so that you end up leaving hungry it points to one of my favorite things that comedy does which it shows you a truly absurd scene scenario what have you And it's so absurd and it's so ridiculous that you can't help but laugh at it. And what they're doing is they're poking fun at it, but it also underscores like unsettling reality that this does exist. This is a thing. Um, All of these high-end restaurants with their food snow and little drizzle of sauce with like a single scallop and a scallion tip laid over the top of it to look incredible but has no real substance it not only grounds in an unsettling sense of reality that if you had to look at it in a different context in a very literal context it would be upsetting instead it's funny because we're poking fun at it and not only that it's also a situation of good humor because it's punching up I don't think there's a moment in this movie where there's any kind of humor punching down, which I really appreciate. Speaking of punching up and down, there's a moment that I thought was hysterical where one of his bandmates is talking to Veronica. Clearly, they must have dated or something in high school and she's pregnant and he is like, oh, it's not mine, is it? And she goes... No, it's my fiance's, Denise. He goes, oh, yeah, I, I, 
I identify as an LGBTQ ally. So <laughs> thank you for your service. I he know. thanks her for her service. And if anybody has seen, which I would be shocked if they haven't, the Netflix uh, show Heartstopper, there's a moment where one of the girls is like, mm-hmm. I'm not homophobic. I'm an ally. And the one of the lesbian characters go, thank you for your service. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Why, but I, anyway, so like, it's just really funny. I think it was more funny here in that fact that he thanked her for her service as if she's done something. I think I'm going to start thanking all queer people for their service because I think that uh, deeply and truly they're the backbone of this country. They make it way more beautiful, way funnier. Well, I would argue that black women are the backbone of this country. You would be correct. And and I would also argue that black queer trans people are the backbone. I think you would be very correct in this assumption. I think that the spine of this country deserves a rest. Let the limbs do something for a change. Exactly. Give the spine (laughs) a massage. I know a wonderful lady. I think her name was like Erica or something. I got my first real massage ever last month. It made me feel like a cooked noodle. And afterwards, they're like, we have tea. Would you like some tea? And I said, no, thank you. I'm undeserving of such luxury. And then I left. (laughs) No, actually, I said I have to meet a friend for drinks, which was true. Which reminds me, uh, there was a really terrible live music performance at the restaurant that we were at. It was a Friday and they had a guy playing guitar and singing. (laughs) And have you ever seen someone... With an acoustic, electric, like, combo guitar. Have you ever looked at them and thought to yourself, they look like the embodiment of the worst parts of John Mayer? He did. And that's exactly what he sounded like. But thankfully, I don't think that uh, Randall Park's performance in this was nearly as bad as that. Do you like that segue, Chelsea? How I just... I I did. I was just thinking, we really haven't talked about this movie. And- what did you think about the musical element of this? Because I was of two minds where I know that the plot was trying to push the idea that he wasn't going to do anything bigger or wasn't going to take his music more seriously because he felt like if it did take off, he would have to sacrifice uh some degree of his duty to his father but also there was likely just an element of lack of confidence surrounding it that's how the movie presented it but it made me think about how so often we decide that we need to take the things that we really really enjoy or that we're really good at and do something more with it than we're already doing you know if you play music you have to be a great performer and Why can't we just have hobbies? I think it really speaks to art's relationship to capitalism Mm -hmm. because art in and of itself is its own thing, but in order for it to be seen by people, it a lot of times has to be commodified. It has to interact. Yeah, it has to be commodified and it has to interact with 
the market, right? And we we have this idea that like if you're good at something, you should make money off of it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's an inherently bad idea necessarily, but as somebody that worked in a job that killed my love of something really near and dear to my heart because I was having to participate in a hobby for work purposes. I don't think it works for everyone. And I do think you should be able to do things as hobbies. I think so much of our lives, I know we've talked about this before, where we we identify with what we do for work. So when you meet a new people, one of the first questions that pe- they'll ask are like, oh, what do you do? And what they mean by that is, what do you do for work? So I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a teacher. And that becomes our entire identity. So we have this weird idea that things we do for fun, things we do just because we enjoy them, we're not doing them to make money, we're not doing them for any other reason than we just enjoy doing them, that somehow they're less worthy of our time than things we do that we make money off of. This podcast is a great example of this. We don't make a dime off of this. In fact, we have poured hours uh, and some money not a lot, but some money into this because we have fun doing it. And so it's really nice when people are like, yeah, I really enjoy what you're doing um, because it's just nice to like have the thing you created be appreciated. Now, if somebody wants to come and pay us money to do this, um, I would take the money. But my number my point, is 770. Here- <laughs> you can email them. <laughs> but, my, but my point here, yeah, yeah email us at loveitforscreening at gmail.com. Um, but my point here is when we first floated this idea, one of the things that was holding me back at first was like, well, but we're not going to get famous doing this. We're not going to be paid to do this. And that almost stopped us from doing it. Yeah. Because there's this antagonistic voice, the voice of capitalism that says, if you're doing something and you're not being paid for it, then you're wasting your time. Yeah, which is and just so sad. I want it makes you. It's wonder, really sad. Yeah, it makes you wonder how much, how much amazing, how many amazing things, how much incredible art or otherwise could be produced if people just felt like it was worth their time. And I also do want to point out. Uh, I know it's very cliche, but rest is productive. And rest varies from person to person what that looks like. It could look like reading a book. It could look like baking. It could look like playing Stardew Valley for 105 (laughs) hours in three months. Hypothetically, (laughs) I don't know anyone who's done that. It could look like literally taking a nap in the middle of the day. I'm very pro-nap and I can't monetize that. I mean, maybe I could. Maybe I could set up cameras and, you know, let creepy weirdos watch me nap. I did see an ad uh, like, I don't know, three months ago or so where they were looking for professional sleepers. And it wasn't to like test anything. It was, I, I believe it was a mattress company that wanted to have people like sleeping on the bed in a store as if to illustrate like, look, these people are sleeping on this mattress. It must be a good mattress. Hey guys, they could be your next sponsor. The catchphrase was like, get paid to sleep. I sent it to my friend who is also a pro-napper. You know, you've been talking about wanting to quit your job. Maybe you could do this. 
there's a lot of pressure on people to love what they do for work. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, I think this is a, I, I think that there's an innocent explanation for this. I think the innocent explanation is we do spend a lot of our lives working. So you don't want to be doing something that you hate and are like dreading doing every day. But I think the insidious explanation is that if you have people doing what they're passionate about, they will work harder for the same amount of money. Mm-hmm. And that is exploitation. And that is what capitalism relies on, folks. So, you know, I grew up and people are always like, you know, do what you love, do what you love. I did what I loved and I hated it. In fact, it made me hate the thing that I love. I still, I still like, I have a, I have a poisoned relationship with that thing. I hope that one day I will be able to heal that relationship and not have that hobby be something that I can't participate in. But unfortunately, that there's real repercussions. And and I don't think it's not the same for every person, but I do think that being restricted in in a hobby because you're doing it for someone else, being required to participate in something because you're doing it for someone else and not for yourself it takes a lot of the pleasure out of that activity going off of that i'm just thinking about my experience as entry-level or mid-level worker i've worked for very small companies where i was the first staff member hired uh to a well previously three attorney team. Um, When I started, it was a two attorney team. So I've done that. I've worked for the largest jewelry conglomerate in the world uh, as an assistant manager of a single store in a tiny town in a not massive state in the United States. Kind of from all ends and all scales, even when you are on a tiny team where you are basically a team of one reporting to two managers, two bosses, however you want to phrase it. You have to remember that the global network of capital essentially functions to separate the workers from the means of production, which means that you are never going to be the one to have access to the true creation of what you are doing. You are facilitating it. And you need to keep in mind that the end goal of what you are helping create is ultimately not your responsibility because you will never get the credit for that. You will never get recognition and you will also just never get anything out of it other than just knowing that you were a very small part of something much bigger than yourself. And if that bothers you, Um, because a lot of times people want to feel like they have an integral role and ultimately, unless you are the one truly producing something, your role is not nearly as integral as you think it is. You have to become okay with that. If you are going to work in something, especially something that you love, but especially something that you don't love. Um, and it actually makes working in something that you don't love easier, in my opinion, Because you know that at the end of the day, just as much as they can take or leave you, you can take or leave them. And I find great comfort in that. And this is a disclaimer that none of this applies to my current job. I love my current job. Um, Please do not. If anyone who I work with listens to this, no, you didn't. 
(laughs) (laughs) To bring it back to uh, Marcus and Sasha, I think there's a key key difference. I think you can look at it from Sasha's perspective and she sees someone who's truly great at what he does and she's like, you aren't living up to your full potential. And while I think that that perspective in a larger sense could be applied to him, I don't think it is a missed opportunity for him to not you know, make his music a career if that's not something he actually wants to do. By that same token, I think that from Marcus's perspective, he looks at Sasha and, you know, he does say to her at one point, you've transformed the, like, what makes Asian cuisine, Asian cuisine, like the tradition of it, and you've you've wrapped it up in a hyper-stylized bow to cater to wealthy white people mm-hmm. and, you know, and essentially calls her a sellout. And, you know, look, I I say go Sasha for profiting off of, you know, she she's not borrowing from any other culture but her own, right? Mm-hmm. So I, you know, and, and she's trying to recoup, you know, that that money. And, you know, so if, if wealthy white people want to pay for you know, $6,400 for the whisper of a cloud of smoke or whatever the heck they're eating. You know what? Let them like take their money and run. But I think that Marcus in some ways has a point. Is that really like what she wants her her legacy to be? Mm-hmm. Is she really? I think the question with with selling out really comes with like, you're not actually representing a group Instead, mm-hmm. you are playing into what other people want you to be and making it nice and neat and you can slap a price tag on it that people are going to feel gonna feel good about paying it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm not – I don't think that either of their routes is incorrect. I think it's down to the individual whether or not they want to transform a passion into a career. She seems to thrive on it. Yeah. So I think it's probably the uh, a good a good move for her. He on the other hand seems to, like that's his it almost seems like it's his escape from a lot of the other things. It's a way for you could view it as a crutch, I think. He is in some ways like his life has not changed since high school. Mm-hmm. And he might be stuck because his mom died and that was traumatic and he is trying to feel connected to a time before his life like blew up. Well, I think he is it's not so much the music that is the crutch. I think he he's using his dad as an excuse to stay. It's like my dad needs me. Mm-hmm. I can't leave. I can't think about anything else for more than a few seconds because I I need to be here for my dad. And that brings us later on to the conversation that his dad has with him. He's like, "I can take care of myself." Oh, I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. But I, I think it, his entire life is, is really reminiscent of not moving on from that moment in time. But I, I think he genuinely seems like he's enjoying himself when he's performing. But I don't think that means he has to make that the career move. Okay. I think he can still do it as a side hobby. Mm-hmm. Honestly, are there hobbies anymore? I feel like very rarely do you find someone that 
you know, just does something. And mind you, hobbies are expensive. Yeah. I think that my I hobby think- is dissociation. Did you just do that during that entire conversation, yeah, Madison? Oh is that God. why you bring it up? <laughs> no, I was just thinking about like, what do I do to chill out? You know, we were talking about the discussion of what rest looks like. And for a lot of people who are caught in a productivity loop, uh, which I feel like, fuck, most everyone is, uh, they have to have a hobby that feels like there's tangible results for them at the end. And I started thinking about like, well, what do I do to chill out? And I might watch like a movie or a TV show. I might read. I might play Stardew Valley. Um, I do crochet some. I got like hyper crochet mode around the holidays. Uh, so I've fallen off of that quite a bit recently just because I need to give my wrists a break. But other than that, I just there's a cycle of what I do where it's just sort of very mindlessness, like focusing on something that doesn't actually require legitimate focus. Uh, I will, after we finish recording this, I will probably turn on a podcast on my phone and play Stardew Valley on my Switch. I don't know if that could be considered a hobby, but I wonder if it's because I feel like hobbies have to be productive. Like they have to produce something. Interesting. I think you could be right. Do you find yourself... I So if I have a day... You know, like on the weekend or something where I'm, I'm, I don't really have any plans. It's like, oh, what should I do today? And I find it very hard to decide what I'm going to do because if I decide on one thing, I'm taking away from all of the other possibilities that I might participate in. Mm-hmm. And so then much of my day is just spent deciding what am I going to do? And eventually I give up and I watch the same TV show I've watched a million times over because at least I know I'm not wasting my time on a TV show that I might not like. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have fun. But also I feel completely unsatisfied with how I've spent my day. You know, a conversation like this over a couple beers last summer with my friend Laura uh, was when I first learned the phrase analysis paralysis. And I feel like that's just what you're describing is you are paralyzed by the idea of how to spend your own time your own time and I completely relate to this you know what I usually end up doing I go I'll just go to sleep I would rather sleep than decide what to do I'm writing notes as we speak so I can bring this up in my therapy session in five days yeah yeah I should really write it down too yeah I got therapy tomorrow nice I'll just I'll just give her the uncut footage as homework. I'll just send it to her later tonight. Perfect. Amanda, do you have a similar do you have a hobby? Well, I know well, you kind I, of do I have read a hobby. A lot like you do. Um lately I come home from work and I'm so exhausted that I just make dinner, turn on TV and crash. But um yeah, community theater. Uh, would would be my hobby that makes me happy I don't know what to do with myself when I'm not doing that (laughs) and I think my favorite part about that is just the it's in the name the essence of community that goes with that I feel like maybe that's what I'm lacking when it comes to hobbies um Chelsea I guess this is technically a hobby for us I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I, I watch the movies for these. Um, and this is not the we we do the same sort of thing. We're in a 
film group with Amanda and a couple of other friends. Uh, we used to be in a book club uh, that's at a standstill, but s- same sort of thing. You, you're taking a piece of media and analyzing it, talking about it. Mm-hmm. So clearly this is something that we all enjoy mm-hmm. doing. So Madison, would you like to start a second podcast with me so that we can do more of this? Or do we just take this to like twice a week? Um, I don't know if I could handle doing this twice a week because I am terrible. The editing is a bitch. Yeah. Yeah. But I think what we could do is we could instead just basically do a rundown of everything that we talk about in our therapy sessions with our therapists. Just don't cut any of it. Put it all online. Air all of our dirty laundry. And um, maybe like block out names to protect the innocent and the guilty. (laughs) And maybe someone could find some good from that. We'll just air our therapy sessions. You know, Madison, what people might talk about in therapy? What? Whether we're right when we decide things are or are not (laughs) rom-coms. Might really bother some folks. You know what? After Monster-in-Law, I am sure of that. I stand by my position (laughs) on Monster-in-Law. Well, Chelsea, in case Amanda... I'm kidding. Amanda could run this show. She listens to all the episodes. She knows the criteria. Amanda, would you like to walk us through our own criteria? (laughs) Do they date? (laughs) And they do. Perfect. Um... Yes, Please support we your have thesis that statement. Scene. Well, obviously, they have a kind of a uh, weird double date with Keanu Reeves. <laughs> but also, uh, after they get together, we see them at the dive bar. She's supporting him uh, with his music. So we see them kind of in their, in their dating element uh, in that sense. Um, we also kind of in their t- awkward teenage years after they, you know, they go into the VK. <laughs> you could call that a kind of date. It's like, all right, all right, we're, mm-hmm. we're together, I, I guess. Let's get some food. <laughs> That's a whole mood. Um, you also, I like the scene where they're in the diner and she's like, wow, this place is actually great. And he's like, yeah, you just... Painted your entire childhood with like a shit paintbrush. Not all of it was bad. Um, But the scene where he's learned Cantonese so he can speak to the women for the better service and they bring him free food and then like pull it away from her. That's funny. That was great. So they definitely do date, Chelsea. Confirmed. I agree. Yeah, they do date. Did we laugh? We certainly did laugh. Um, Yeah, we have Veronica, number one. Oh. hilarious hilarious uh keanu playing a fictional keanu okay i love when celebrities play themselves in a movie but essentially what they're playing is a completely out of touch with reality celebrity that they've just slapped a real name on mm-hmm. for laughs like because that makes it funnier because otherwise you have to explain a fictional celebrity and their role in this world so it's easier it's faster and it's more funny 
if you just make it a real celebrity. I also loved that it was Keanu that they chose because everything that you read about Keanu, like he donates a shit ton of money to like child cancer research. He rides the subway. He waited outside at like a premiere event in the line with everybody else to get in for something that he was in because if they were waiting, he was going to wait too. Like it was only fair. He's a real great dude. But he might also be unhinged. Unhinged? Unhinged. Oh. (laughs) You know what? If he was unhinged, I'd swipe. Which direction? The yes direction. I don't know. I don't know which one is right. I'm, I'm really out of practice when it comes to dating apps. But Chelsea, I think what I want to get to, because this is our sticking point lately, I want to throw the question to you. Is love in the driver's seat? Madison is love in the driver's seat. I think it is. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I just held my breath so much. I know. I, dra- I dragged that out a lot so that you would sweat a little. Uh, no, I think what we have here is a childhood friends to lovers story with an estrangement thrown in. In comparison to another film we watched last season, Sweet Home Alabama, which I did not like at all. <laughs> I think that this does the childhood friends to lovers better because all of the people involved just felt more fleshed out, more real. So you have them growing up together and we get this really lovely montage at the beginning of the movie for about 10 minutes or so where we see them growing up, spending time together. We see that uh, Sasha is really welcomed into uh, Marcus's home by his mother and she has a relationship with his mother because her parents are so absent. I do appreciate that they address the fact that her parents are absent later in the film. Like it's still something they're working on. Um, But anyway, so then we see them kind of connect when they're teenagers, immediately thwarted by Marcus's grief Mm -hmm. and, you know, saying something that he doesn't actually mean. He's just hurt. Yeah. But the words sting enough that they don't speak to each other for like 15 years or something like that. And so then when they come back together, we have Sasha in this kind of the peak of 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 her career, you know, like she's made it big. She's opening up these other restaurants. She's come back to San Francisco, but she's not the same person. And she doesn't seem to appreciate home the way that he does. But by that same token, I think there's a really beautiful conversation between the both of them about, you know, home versus away. Mm -hmm. And unlike Sweet Home Alabama, where the conclusion you're supposed to come to is the conclusion you're supposed to come to in any Hallmark movie, which is the woman with ambition is obviously wrong and she should move back home to get married and make babies. Instead, the story that you're given allows room for her to still be an ambitious woman It allows them both to address traumas from the past, not in a serious, like, you know, drama way. This is a romantic comedy. I don't know. I think I just appreciated the story a lot more. I think this Friends to Lovers story was just more compelling than uh, ones we've seen in the past. I applaud the people for making this movie what it was. Well, I think it really gets to the heart of what home truly is and what makes home is people you know obviously there's going to be nostalgia around places you used to go 
uh, places used to eat, spend time at that sort of thing. But other than maybe, you know, like your favorite restaurant where it's a thing of, oh, my God, that food was so amazing. You're not remembering, oh, you know, this park is near where I grew up. You're remembering this park is where after your first breakup, when you're 16 years old, your best friend drove you out and you went to Publix first and got those mini brownie bites and neon purple funfetti icing and sat on the hood of the car and dipped these nasty little brownies into this even more disgusting icing and sat there and cried and talked about how boys ain't shit, you know, hypothetically. It's moments like that where what you're remembering is the moments that you've spent with the people, not necessarily the locations mm. involved. And that's what Sweet Home Alabama missed. Sweet Home Alabama's like, but look at the small town charm. And you know, how could you give up this tiny town for these big city ideas? Marcus says, you know, I'll basically I'll go wherever. And then she brings home to him in a really, really meaningful way with opening up a restaurant on the opposite coast of where they grew up with recipes that still feel like home, that feel like his mom is there. That is. I think is the greatest part of this love story. He's there to bring her the love that she always craved, which was being chosen. You know, her parents never chose her. The Kims chose her. And he was a huge element of that. So he continues to choose her. And she brings back what he was missing most when he has been lost and stuck in his grief for all these years which is remembering what it felt like before his world blew up. This is a great love story. I can see Amanda's like, yeah. that's the sappy also, shit right there. One of, the, <laughs> one of the reasons I absolutely love this trope, the, the childhood friends to lovers, is because they grew up together. They know each other so well. And that's how she is able to bring home to mm -hmm. him. She knows She knows what home feels like to him. And he knows how to provide that support and that love that he knows that she's been missing. Yeah. I think this is why this trope works in film for me, specifically as someone that this is not a favorite genre. This is a genre I usually try to avoid. I don't find a lot of these romances believable because not enough has been done on screen to illustrate to me that these people know one another and so it feels very like the love feels very artificial but with a story like this where you can easily establish for me that how deep their relationship like their bond is mm -hmm. and how well they know each other I'm much more able to believe like you've shown me the strength of that bond so I am therefore able to believe that they love and care for one another mm-hmm I don't want to say it's this trope specifically. There are other stories in which I believe the romance. And it's not just stories that have longevity like this one and When Harry Met Sally. Although I will maintain that I don't think she should have met him. But <laughs> that's neither here nor there. So I can I can believe it. So yeah. again, not sure that it's the trope itself. I and I don't even think it's longevity. I just think that a lot of these movies rely on an 
on the viewer's willingness to just accept that these people love each other without really doing much to cement that fact. I think that in the realistic fiction genre, audiences are far less likely to extend suspension of disbelief. And that's the toughest part of the rom-com genre is you have to, exactly what you're saying, be comfortable with what is essentially an underdeveloped relationship 99% of the time being shown to you as a depiction of true love because that's what it's supposed to do. It's too simplistic for a lot of people who do not want to engage in that suspension of disbelief in this sort of genre. And tropes like childhood friends to lovers really help circumvent that. And I think it opens up, I mean, Chelsea, would you agree that it opens up the genre to people who wouldn't otherwise be interested in engaging in it? Yeah, I think there's a lot of like history and I think it also... With that history, you open up the story to a lot of really great character development. Mm -hmm. I feel like this is a story where we didn't ask either of our leads to change by themselves. Mm -hmm. Instead, their relationship, their history with one another allows both of them to change, make compromises, which is what a relationship should be instead of one person completely changing their entire personality existence for somebody else to Mm -hmm. fit some mold that they don't actually fit inside of, which I find completely frustrating. So I feel like, yeah, I liked that both of them, they did grow and they did change. And I think that is, you know, happened so well because of of the history, because it is a childhood friends to lovers story. Update, (laughs) Chelsea hates Greece. I hate Greece. Yeah, that was the first movie that came to mind with the character mm. changing their entire persona to fit. The oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. that's you should have just read my mind. <laughs> How dare you? I well, I thought you said Grace, and so oh. I was like, "Who is Grace?" And then I realized you said Greece, but I was still thinking of the country, so I was thinking of Mama Mia, and nothing was making sense because Abba slaps. So. It took me a minute to realize what you were talking about. That's so very I fair. <laughs> Just a little walk through my mind there. <laughs> so with all of this in mind, Chelsea, where would you rate this in our watchability score? And what even is a watchability score? So glad you asked, Madison. A watchability score is a score we give to every film that we watch to gauge how watchable it is in the simplest of terms. It's a one to five scale. We have fashioned it after the walkability score that is given to real estate properties that evaluates such properties on the basis of how close they are to things like shopping centers, restaurants, you know, can you get there by foot, right? So with all of that being said, at number one, bottom of the barrel, stranded in the desert. Number two, backroads barbecue. Three, Strip mall in suburbia. Number four, four blocks from a transit stop. And coming in at number five, the best, the creme de la creme, the best coffee shop in the whole city is right downstairs. And they don't charge extra for non-dairy options. (laughs) 
<laughs> nope. They would never. They would never. Amanda, you are our guest. So would you do us the honor of giving I your watchability score? I would give it a 4.5. I think instead of four blocks from a transit stop, it's two blocks. Very decent walk, especially when the weather is nice. Wow. <laughs> Very good. Man, I feel stingy now. I was going to give it a four. I'll bump it up. I'll use the fancy um, decimals that Chelsea uh, has <laughs> unlocked this season. I'm going to give it a 4.25 uh, just because I feel like almost all of the primary cast members were fairly well developed in just moments of nuance because anyone who knows me knows that I love when side characters feel like they are less shoved to the side and have a bit more personality to them. That's why I love writers like Casey McQuiston. I'm obsessed with their work. Anyway, I just had to name drop. I don't think I've name dropped Casey McQuiston this season. So I had to bump up my numbers there. Uh, but I think that there were just small moments that really elevated this entire movie uh, the comedy was great there was a great mix of hilarious dialogue great physical humor and i mean i'm just a sucker for a childhood friends to lovers story too i give this a 4.25 yeah uh honestly i i was gonna give it a 4.5 i it's a watchability score and i think it's pretty watchable it's pretty it's 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 watchable. I think this film would reach a wider audience than a lot of movies we end up watching. Mm -hmm. I think this would appeal to a wider audience, but I do think it is a rom-com we determined. So, you know, uh, that's really great. Um, I Obviously, Randall Park and Ali Wong are incredibly funny. I think all of the supporting cast is equally as funny i believe didn't ali wong and randall park write this as well yes they did and um yeah i didn't talk much about i didn't talk any about the writers or the director but uh, nanachka khan they uh she hasn't done much beyond uh fresh off the boat that's probably how she and randall park like how she became associated with the project i assume but ali wong and randall park and there was a third writer who also contributed they wrote and produced the film. There's a brainchild of theirs. I think I'll watch anything that they do. We've rated this film pretty highly. I think We've determined I need to it change is a rom -com. my score. I need to change my score to a 4.5. I did the same thing where I got nervous about rating it too high, like I did with Straight Up, which was my first five. This is a 4.5. I take back my... It's, it's getting my extra 0.25. <laughs> I got nervous. All right. So this is a 4.5. It is a rom-com. This feels like a really big win for this podcast this season. We had a lot of episodes that weren't rom-coms. And and now we're we're moving on up. Uh we have rom-coms, um which is good for most people. Final thoughts, Amanda? Ta-ta, Julian. <laughs> <laughs> okay, apparently my brain does not want to remember this movie and I just watched it yesterday. On the phone, and then he's mimicking her. He's like, You sound like Dracula. Ta ta, Julian. Yeah, when he's making fun of her phone voice, which everyone has. Show me a person who doesn't have like a customer service. Oh, I phone definitely voice. have one. I'll show you a liar. 
Well, Chelsea, um, I guess I have to tell you now what to watch next week so you're aware. Because otherwise, what what will I watch? I, I have no idea. Not a rom-com, I can tell you that much. <laughs> well, Chelsea, next week we are embracing my favorite coastal, well, it's hard to say my favorite coastal grandma vibe because I have several. Uh, but next week we're going to dive in with Diane Keaton and Jack Nicholson in Something's Gotta Give. So I hope that you will keep me on for another week as your host so we can discuss that. I like Diane Keaton. So I'm a little skeptical about Jack Nicholson. You should be. But we have a two for two because we got Keanu this week. We get Keanu next week. Oh. Ooh, two Keanu's? Is that the fastest someone's made a reappearance on the pod? Most definitely. Back-to-back episodes? Yeah, and I think that Keanu is the only one worthy of that. Well, uh, first of all, Amanda, thank you so much for joining us this week to discuss Always Me by Maybe. Maybe next week, I mean, you won't be here, but we'll actually talk about the movie, I think, a little bit more than we did. <laughs> we were just very chatty today. But no, seriously, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, can you tell the lovely Lafsters where they can find you and everything that you're up to on the internet? Yeah, so I actually write poetry, so you can visit my website at amandacatherinepoetry.wixsite.com slash Amanda Catherine Poetry. That's Catherine uh, with a K and a Y, K-A-T-H-R-Y-N. On Instagram, you can find me at Amanda Catherine Poetry. And on TikTok, you can find me at Amanda Catherine Writes. The, uh, writes as in W-R-I-T-E-S. And what's the where can they find the book of poetry that you have out now? And yes, what is that so called? So I have a link on the website I mentioned, but you can find it at um, um, Barnes and Noble online, and it is called Her, and it's kind of a uh, mostly mostly feminist work with uh, lots of inspirational. Hopefully, hopefully things you'll find inspirational and encouraging as well. And Chelsea and I have both read at least some of it. And um, we have no knowledge of poetry at all, but we thought Thank it was so spectacular. Much. Well, y'all, y'all compliments from y'all was. Uh, are the best because having been an English major with you and read your work, I know you are both very talented writers. Don't let the people know we're literate. They will burn us at the stake. That's witchcraft right there. (laughs) Well, Amanda, thank you again for coming on the show. Everyone, please check her and her poetry out. It is truly incredible. And hopefully we'll see you again in the future. You might come on a lot more often once Chelsea finally kicks me off of the show. So We will have all of Amanda's links and accounts uh, linked in the show notes for you to easily find. Uh, also linked in the show notes are places where you can find us. But we'll tell you about them right now, just in case this is how you prefer to get such information. Uh, Of course, we encourage you to write in and tell us about your thoughts and feelings. You can recommend movies that you'd like us to watch. Uh, You do recommend at your own risk because we might hate the movie. We will tell it to shreds. We have 
uh, no problem doing so. In fact, Amanda recommended a film to us back in season one, and we did rip it to shreds, but she still agreed to come on the podcast. Is this reparations for our previous behavior? Who's to say? <laughs> but you, if you'd like to uh, write in, you can send us an email. Um, love it for screening at gmail.com is where you can direct that. And of course, you can follow us on Instagram at love at first screening, where every week we have a poll related to the most recent episode of the podcast. So you can vote and let us know, let your voice be heard in such serious topics as what sort of ghost shenanigans will you be getting up to? Will you be spiritually snooping to get that sweet tea? And justice, of course. Will you be farting phantasmically? Will you be <laughs> spooking people like a traditional ghost? You know, not the most original, but it's a classic for a reason. Will you be giggling in the mirror like a <laughs> ghastly ghost? My advice this week is that you should look into how to support your local mutual aid workers. I concur. Yeah. Well, once again, we are Love It for Screening. We are here every Wednesday talking about all of the rom-coms you love, love to hate, and everything in between. So, until next time. <laughs> <laughs>